we just came off talking about rare epilepsies. The reason that's important because any one person may only see a few of any certain condition, but you put a bunch of people together, you can get the answer a lot faster. Fellow Homo sapiens, in this week's Epilepsy Sparks Insights podcast, we hear from Dr. Scott Perry, a pediatric epileptologist and head of neurosciences at the Cook Children's Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas. Scott tells us about genetic testing regarding the epilepsies and PERC, the Pediatric Epilepsy Research Consortium, which has led to some really cool discoveries and challenges. Part two of two next week shall feature Scott telling us about some of the disparities in epilepsy care identified through the PERC, followed by a chat about epilepsy art, or brain art, I should say, an important method of communication when it comes to epilepsy and to neuroscience. I am Scott Perry. I am uh, a pediatric epileptologist and the head of neurosciences at the Jane and John Justin Institute for Mind Health at Cook Children's in Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, my areas of interest are predominantly epilepsy surgery and uh, rare genetic epilepsy. And what got you into this sphere? First of all, in medical school, neuroscience just made sense. You know, some people can listen to hearts and hear murmurs and know exactly what's going on. And some people can listen to stories uh, and know what's going on. Uh, And I was always interested in the complexity of the story of neurology and specifically epilepsy um, uh, when I got into residency. And then, you know, Beyond that, the epilepsy surgery became interesting to me because it was a way to cure. You know, the thing about neurology, especially when I trained, a lot of people didn't want to go into it because they're like, you don't cure anything, you just name everything, you know. Uh, that's not true. <laughs> you know, you could cure things, uh, and epilepsy surgery was one of those. And then genetic epilepsy just followed. It was you know, these cases that were mysterious that you found a reason for, and now we're getting to a point where we actually are getting to disease-modifying therapies, yeah. and in particular, those families, the rare disease families, are some of the most, like, laser-focused, dedicated people to solving a problem, and I really enjoy working with them. They have energy which comes from I don't know where. Seriously, it's laser-focused on finding a solution. Not not that the others don't, it's just that they have, you know, rare genetic epilepsy. When you get that gene, like, you've got a target, and they are focused on that target. It's not just the epilepsy, it's that gene, how do we fix it? And in a way, I mean, it might sound a bit sick, but in a way, if you can identify that, that one off, awfully... Uh, awfully impactful gene, then that is, you do have that laser. Whereas where somebody who has an, uh, an, an epilepsy which has an unidentified cause, I think those, those can be the more challenging patients, right? And when you throw around the word cure, it's like we have to, I think, be careful with that. Oh, for sure, for sure. I think the most important thing is first and foremost reason. You know, if you, you got to try to get to the reason. Um, and that's, you know, one of the, the arguments frequently have when we're talking about doing genetic testing you know, no matter what the age is, because I, I advocate a lot for genetic testing, for instance, in adults. Uh, and you get the feedback, well, well, it's not going to make a change in, you know, what you're doing. I was like, well, first of all, how do you know? Right. Because you hadn't done the testing yet, so you don't know what they have. So if you know what they have, you may actually change their treatment. And let's say you do it and there is nothing to do to change their treatment. If there does become something in the future, at least you know what they got so you can do it, right? So if you, do, if you don't know what you have, you don't know what to Google, all right? And you don't know how to figure out, like, what you're trying to solve. So, you know, that, that's why that kind of stuff is important, Yeah. You know.
sometimes having an answer which you don't necessarily desire where which can be I don't know that is something at least you know and you know where you stand and keeping in touch with your clinician and the latest research and it can manage your expectations and you know and and your hope and because one of the worst things I think which can happen to individuals and families is that they have hope and then it's taken away either because they're misled or funding or whatever I bet you've seen you know circumstances like that right but when you know you know when you again know what you have you know if if as you said if you know you lost that hope well you can look elsewhere because maybe there's hope somewhere else you know i mean you know what you're looking for uh at least you know how to look and make sure you've got the answer or an answer i should say (laughs) and are open to contradiction because you never know right that's right that's right. So um, we were going to talk about your Pediatric Epilepsy Research Consortium. Please tell us all about that. What is it? What do you do? What's the purpose? Sure, yeah. So the Pediatric Epilepsy Research Consortium, or you'll hear us at conferences refer to it as PERC, uh, was, uh, is, is a group that was put together now just over 10 years ago. Um, wasn't my idea by any means. I'm just a member. Um, this was this was put together by some other great uh, leaders in pediatric epilepsy who wanted to bring U.S. epilepsy centers together to foster kind of collegial multi-center research. And the reason for that, I mean, we just came off talking about rare epilepsies. The reason that's important because any one person may only see a few of any certain condition, but you put a bunch of people together, you can get the answer a lot faster, right? Um, and we wanted to, so not only work with collegial research, but really create a network to bring young investigators up uh, in the epilepsy world. Um, over the years, we have grown to 65 U.S. Uh, epilepsy centers are part of the group. Mm-hmm. Um, we are um, about to become our own independent nonprofit organization. Uh, and within that group of the 65 centers, we are divided into 13 different um, um, special interest groups that focus on certain areas of epilepsy um, that um, we do research in. So, for instance, I um, started and am um, now still a member of the surgery interest group uh, to focus on you know, pediatric epilepsy surgery and answering those questions that families need when they are talking about the option of surgery. That sounds really important. I can say as a surgery patient myself, although it was uh, in supposed adulthood that I had it, um, you knew I I wasn't at all all frightened when I was going to have surgery because I knew the likelihood of well the likelihood of death was very very low I, I asked for all the all the relevant information what what was classified as success and you know what are the angle classes etc um but I come across lots of families that you know they, they just hear the word surgery and understandably freak out because it sounds scary but often I would say largely it's, it really shouldn't be right it shouldn't. I mean, the mortality from epilepsy surgery itself, as you said, is incredibly low, Mm. right? But every patient with epilepsy that's undergoing surgical evaluation is a unique patient, right? They have their unique combination of variables and things and workup and and whatever else. And and what we wanted to get to um, in in our group and with the pediatric uh, epilepsy uh, surgery database is to understand, like, what is the you know, how do you select candidates uh, for surgery? Are people getting selected uh, at some places yet denied at other places? Uh, and why is that? Um, is the workup different? And if the workup is different, 
which workup's the better workup? Mm. Is the surgery different? Which surgery is the better surgery? You know, what are the long-term outcomes beyond seizures? What are the neuropsychological outcomes? Those kinds of things. And all of those questions are really hard to answer in isolation. So, you know, think about something like a technology like magnetoencephalography. If, you know, most of the papers you'll read on magnetoencephalography and epilepsy surgery are from a single institution or maybe a couple institutions that got together, and that's their experience with magnetoencephalography. But there might be another place, you know, down the street that doesn't have one, never uses it, still does the same epilepsy surgeries on the same type of patients. Are those patients better off or worse off? And you can't, you can't do those, you know, you could design those kinds of trials and put people together and, and, and do it, but it will take forever. So instead what we do is everybody goes about their business doing epilepsy surgery like they do epilepsy surgery, and we collect uniform data, and then we can do comparative effectiveness to see if, you know, the site that takes one route to do surgery is doing better or worse than the site that takes the same patient but takes a different route to do the surgery. Um, and, and you can collect that information so much faster. So we have, we have about 2,100 surgical patients in the database right now. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of unique things about the database. Um, one is that we collect data on all patients referred for epilepsy surgery. Many databases collect all patients that had epilepsy surgery. We're as interested in the people that were denied the opportunity for surgery after an evaluation as the people that received the surgery. Because again, you want to know why did they not get surgery? What, what was that reason? Um, and then um, we also look at um, you know, some other things. We, we, as I said, we collect neuropsych outcomes. So we're collecting information beyond seizure control. Um, we, we look at surgery from the date of um, drug refractory diagnosis, which is also important um, because many studies talk about the duration of epilepsy as a really important factor to seizure-free outcome uh, and ultimate you know, non-seizure outcome, but they count it from the beginning of seizures until the surgery. And to be fair, that's not a fair duration because the patient wasn't a candidate for surgery that whole time because they weren't drug resistant that whole time. The delay to surgery doesn't begin until the person is drug resistant and you haven't referred them. So that's when the delay begins. So you have to look at it a different way. So. Some of these things sound so simple, but we find that I guess each, all, each and every one of us makes, well, none of us are perfect and make errors, right? in evaluation. Correct. And you have your way to do it is the way you were trained to do it. And is that way right? I mean, it's not wrong, <laughs> but is it the best way? I don't know. I mean, the only way to do it is compare. And, and you know, fortunately, you know, this, this project took some time to get off the ground because you can imagine you've got to get, uh, so we have 25 centers right now that are part of the surgery database. So you got to get 25 centers to agree to collect the same data. First of all, you got to get 25 centers to agree to share their data so that, you know, I can see how many surgeries you've done. I can see what kind of surgeries you're doing. I know your outcomes. You know, you got to be able to do that. Um, you know, yeah. So, I mean, it, it takes it takes a bit of um, faith uh, in each other and a collegial relationship um, to make that work. But it's really the only way we're going to get the answers we need. And, and that's one of the things I think Perk fosters is that we're all friends here. We're all trying to make epilepsy care better. You know, no, nobody is trying to uh, outshow the other institution. We're trying to work together to figure out the best way to do it. Um, and when we originally, you know, started down this path, they were really trying to follow 
kind of behind like the children's oncology group model, mm-hmm. where every child that would go to one of these epilepsy centers would be part of research to figure out how to make epilepsy care better. Thank you to Scott for sharing with us his work with the Pediatric Epilepsy Research Consortium and evidently being a really cool pediatric epileptologist. Do make sure that you tune in next week to hear about some of the education and disparities in epilepsy care identified through the PERC, plus our chat regarding some of the highly regarded artists who make the world see epilepsy in a new, colourful light. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.